ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. In the movie The Lion King, we're introduced to the concept of the circle of life. The lion, who's also the king, explains to his son the relationship between the carnivore predators, the herbivore prey and the plants that are nourished by the animals' bodies when they die. I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Occam's Razor, a soapbox for science. And yes, I'm referencing an animated kids movie from the 1990s, what of it? The circle of life is kind of the concept that underpins an environmental movement that's taken hold over the past few decades, rewilding. But what does rewilding look like in Australia? And how do we humans, especially traditional owners, factor in? Tristan Durham is here to explain. Thank you very much. In 1991, a five-year-old grey wolf was captured in Peter Lockheed Provincial Park in Canada. The wildlife biologists that gave her a radio tracking collar also gave her a name, Pluie. For the next two years, they tracked Pluie's movements through Canada and the United States. And what astounded everybody was that a wolf would need so much space. Over that two years, Pluie roamed throughout an area the size of Tasmania. Pluie's story, and others like it, inspired a group of Americans to think differently about conservation and restoration. They began to think big. In the pages of Wild Earth magazine, legends of conservation like Michael Sule, David Foreman and Reid Noss began to articulate a new vision for conservation. They saw a network of core habitats connected by wildlife corridors stretching thousands of kilometres across the country at a scale so huge that the biggest animals in the land could roam free. Animals like elk, bears, moose and wolves. They called this idea rewilding. Another inspiration for rewilding was a series of discoveries that showed just how important large animals are for ecosystems. In a very famous experiment, wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park in 1996. And for the first time in 75 years, they began to hunt in the park. They chased deer away from riverbanks and into deeper cover. And that gave the seedlings on those riverbanks the chance to recover. And pretty soon there was more vegetation, which meant more songbirds, more berries, more bears, more beavers. The riverbanks stabilised and the beavers started building dams. So the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park changed the landscape down to the way that the rivers flow. Since the 1990s, the idea of rewilding has spread around the world, though for reasons I'll come to in a minute, it might be more complicated here in Australia. In Europe, some ecologists have been fascinated by the idea of a landscape with large animals roaming free. Organisations like Rewilding Europe have reintroduced bison, lynx, bears, beavers and wolves everywhere from the Carpathian Mountains to nature reserves right by capital cities like Amsterdam. Now, Europe's a very different place to the USA and human population density is much, much higher. So rewilding is obviously going to be different there. One of the themes that's common to rewilding in both places is the idea of animal agency. Animals like bison or wild horses in Europe can restore ecosystems. They can dig holes, graze seedlings, 
push over saplings and keep the landscape an open mosaic of forest, woodland and grassland. So what's happening in Australia? Well, in terms of animal reintroductions, quite a bit. For example, WWF Australia is working with the Narunga people and other partners on the Southern York Peninsula in South Australia. They're reintroducing ecological engineers like betongs and bandicoots. Those amazing little creatures will go out every single night and they'll dig little holes in the ground looking for fungi and other kinds of food. Those little holes create microhabitats for native plants and they spread seeds and spores across the landscape. They'll turn over tons of soil in a year. In terms of habitat connectivity, one of the most inspiring projects for me is the Gondwana Link program in Western Australia. They're working to reconnect a thousand kilometres of country from the Cary forests in the southwest corner to the woodlands in Mallee on the edge of the Nullarbor Plain. Now there's plenty of opportunity for these projects in Australia, but there's also a problem for rewilding in Australia, something we're going to have to grapple with sooner rather than later if we want to keep on taking inspiration from these European and North American projects. If rewilding is about creating wilderness or if it's about stepping back from nature, then it's going to collide head on with the beliefs and values of traditional owners here. When the idea for rewilding was first being put together back in the 1990s in the United States, the driving idea behind it was wilderness, wilderness preservation backed up by conservation biology. They wanted to see huge areas of intact forests and grasslands, mountains and rivers, where humans only visited and where animals were left undisturbed. When Europeans picked up rewilding, they recognised pretty quickly that they didn't have big wilderness, but they held on to the idea of nature undisturbed by people. For many rewilding advocates in Europe, it's about recreating nature as it would be without people, without human influence, where animals, not humans, shape the landscape. But in Australia, we know that country needs people. The incredible diversity of animals and plants here is in good part a product of careful and skillful land care refined over tens of thousands of years. Indigenous people here and elsewhere have been shaping their landscapes nourishing their ecological communities for thousands of generations. They have a lot of knowledge and they have a lot of responsibility too. Indigenous protected areas cover about 85 million hectares in Australia, which is half of our protected land estate. So what does this mean for rewilding in Australia? Well, I have three suggestions. Firstly, keep listening to traditional owners. They've been saying it for years. We don't need wilderness in Australia. Not in the sense of places without people. We need country that's well cared for. And country that's not just kind to people, but also kind to the animals that live in it. Second, get behind Indigenous-led conservation. The Gondwana Link program that I mentioned before it's restoring huge areas in WA's southwest, but the various groups and individuals involved are not just working to restore habitats and reconnect ecosystems. Their work also supports traditional owners in their aspirations, which, of course, also includes the health of the country and its people. Gondwana Link are facilitating the transfer of land tenure to traditional owners, which gives those traditional owners a more secure legal footing for their connection to country. Third, start thinking about cultural reasons for animal reintroductions. I've been speaking about ecological reasons, but for many traditional owners, cultural and ecological roles are closely entwined. 
For example, I'm working on a project led by the Tasmanian Aboriginal community on Aboriginal land. The beautiful island of Lungtalanana, Clark Island, lies just off the northeast coast of Tasmania. The community is getting ready to reintroduce wombats, wallabies and potaroos, animals that have been missing from the island for decades. Those animals are culturally significant and important to the island ecosystem. I've been kindly given permission to speak about wombats in particular in this context. The wombat's a significant animal for the Palawa people, the Tasmanian Aboriginal community. They were an important food source and they hold cultural stories, including a creation story. Wombats also turn over soil and graze down vegetation, creating mosaics of grass and heathlands. And their burrows are safe havens for other animals, from predators and from wildfire. Palawa understand that country is holistic and the animals that come from country are important for balance and for health. Their relationship with wombats is long-standing and wombats are important for story and spirit and subsistence. So reconnecting with these animals helps the Aboriginal community rebuild their connection to country. So for this community, what they're doing on Lungtalanana is not rewilding so much as cultural landscape restoration. We don't have to use the word rewilding, but I think that the ideas and practices and examples of rewilding elsewhere have something important to offer conservation here in Australia. At its best, rewilding is an optimistic approach to hands-on restoration. It's about restoring animal agency and it's about restoring landscape connectivity. If rewilding is conceptually nimble, if it's adaptable in its approach and if rewilding advocates can listen carefully, then I think we can bring the principles of rewilding in line with principles of Indigenous-led conservation and make a big difference to restoration here in Australia. Thank you. That was Dr Tristan Durham, Research Associate with the ARC Centre of Excellence for Australian Biodiversity and Heritage. He's also a project manager with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. Tristan was speaking at our Occam's Razor live show at Willie Smith's Apple Shed in the Huon Valley in Lutruwita, Tasmania. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and I'll be reintroducing you to more wild science next week. What the Duck is a podcast from ABC Science where we find out what the duck is going on in nature. I'm Dr Ann Jones and in this new season we look at everything from dancing parrots The classic song that Snowball was known to dance to was Everybody by the Backstreet Boys to mozzies with taste in music. They exposed the mosquitoes to Skrillex. It took the mosquitoes longer to find the animal to feed on. What the Duck, nature, no holds barred. Now on the ABC Listener. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.